So we're carrying on in our study of the book of Galatians, the theme that uh, is just coming out so frequently, not just in the book of Galatians, but I think the Lord is uh, teaching us many things about the wonderful subject of grace. You know, grace, the word occurs 120 times in the New Testament. It's such an important theme um, for us to get our heads around and understand, and uh, as the Lord reveals more to us, you know, we understand how essential it is that we live by that grace. So let's bow our hearts and just ask the Lord just to, to bless this time of study now. Father, we do ask for your hand to be upon us, Lord, to teach us now through your Holy Spirit, we ask. Father, I pray that you just reveal to us more of this grace, Lord, that we read of. And Father, we have some sort of head knowledge of, but Father, we really want to understand what it means to live by grace. Father, help us to just comprehend these things. Father, help us to learn and grow. Uh, Lord, not to remain where we are, but to be challenged in our walk with you. So, Father, we just ask your blessing upon this time. Speak to us now, we pray. Lord, Father, take my words. Father, use them for your glory and purpose, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so once again, <coughs> Galatia is an area. So, the, the epistle to the Galatians, it wasn't a particular church or city or anything. It's a region. Um, so, you see this area here. Uh, it was north and south Galatia. Uh, south Galatia typically is the area we're looking at. Uh, and those churches that Paul had planted on his first missionary journey. These are the group of churches that now Paul is writing to. Now, we've already seen some of the problems that had led Paul to write this letter. And we've commented already how important this letter really is. You know, the first two chapters really kind of deal with the authenticity of the gospel. The gospel of grace. Now, Paul has already told us that, you know, it's genuine. It's not something that was made up by man. This has come from God. The origin of this gospel, as he says right at the beginning of chapter 1, he didn't receive it, he didn't make it up, he didn't get it from, from man. This came as a revelation from God. It's also genuine as to its nature, and he expounds that we've seen already. Um, we're going to see as we move on the superiority of the gospel. And Paul is typically comparing it to the law, because that's the challenge, that we either live a legalistic life, a, a life where we're trying to meet some sort of demands, or we're under the gospel of grace. And we're seeing this unfolded as we move forward. And then the last couple of chapters really deal with the, the true liberty of the gospel, and we'll look at how we should live, how we are to live by grace. Uh, and there's a lot of things that the Lord will reveal to us, I'm sure, as we go through. Now, really, Paul is going to give us this defense. We've started to see this already. Chapter 1, uh, it was that kind of personal witness where Paul says, you know, but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which I preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, nor was, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So his personal witness and testimony to this gospel that he's preaching. Then chapter 2, very much we see the witness of the apostles that they agreed with Paul, that that which he was teaching, as they said, as this verse tells us, chapter 2, verse 9, they gave unto Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. They welcomed and they agreed that the message that Paul was preaching was correct, that it was what God had given through Jesus. And chapter 3, we're now going to see Paul take it further, and in a sense appeal to their conscience, appeal to things that they already know, and he's going to challenge them as to why they are now moving away. Again, just to recap, what had happened was the Judaizers, these Jews, that uh, some of them clearly were Christians, but they'd grown up with the law, and they wanted to retain elements of the law. 
And so they were saying, well, yeah, okay, we're Christians, but we also need to keep the Sabbath, or be circumcised, or do this, or do that. And Paul really hits hard in this chapter, as we'll see. So this one now very much appealed to conscience. Now, Paul is actually going to present six arguments over the next two chapters. The first one we're going to see is a personal argument. We'll see this in a second. Then it's an argument from Scripture. Using lots of scriptures, we'll see that in a moment. And then he presents just a logical argument to say, look, this gospel of grace has to be the way it is, and he explains why. And then next week, uh, Lord willing, we'll move on, and we'll look at these other arguments that Paul is going to bring as well. So let's jump into chapter 3, and we're going to look at this kind of uh, challenge first of all. So first of all, it's Paul's personal argument. Now what I'm going to do this morning, we're going to go through the chapter quite quickly, at least certainly most of the chapter, looking at these arguments in context, but then we're going to go back and just do kind of a verse by verse and pick out some uh, real nuggets that are there for us to glean. So, first of all then, this is the argument that Paul says. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only will I learn of you, receive you the, uh, sorry, received you the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it by something you did, or was it by faith? He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? And then he says, and this is really this kind of the crux of his argument, he therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? So this first argument, really, Paul is asking him to look at his life and ministry and see that he'd not ministered the Holy Spirit to them on the basis of their works, but on the basis of faith in the grace of God. Likewise, the miracles that have been done among them had not been on the basis of who was most deserving. Once again, they were done on the basis of faith in the grace of God. Furthermore, Paul's power had not come from the law of Moses, but his faith in Jesus. You see, Paul had not preached Moses to them, but he preached Jesus to them. That's the first argument he brings. You know, really, look at me. Look at the gospel that I brought. Look at the, the, the manner in which I brought it to you. Did you deserve it? Had you earned it? No. The next argument really is a scripture argument. I want you to see if you can count how many scriptures in these next few verses Paul alludes to. Now, again, there are some churches today that somewhat dispense with the Old Testament. And some Christians even talk about themselves as being a New Testament Christian, as if it's a good thing. We're not New Testament Christians, we're just Christians, followers of Christ. The whole of the Bible is there for our learning, that we would grow. And, you know, the apostles quote all the time, and they're quoting scripture from the Old Testament. It's so important. So, see how many you pick up as we go through this. So, Paul says, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faith of Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not faith, but the man that does them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, 
that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. How many scriptures did you count? Let's have a look, shall we? Okay. Paul quotes, first of all, from Genesis chapter 15. So even as Abraham believed God was counted unto him for righteousness. That's Genesis 3.15. For Paul starts with that, a quote from the Old Testament. Then, effectively, moving to Isaiah. You see, we have this then, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith. This is a reference, in a sense, to this verse. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles and set my standard to the people. And they shall bring their sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. So it's a promise in the Old Testament that the Gentiles would be brought in, grafted in, effectively. And then we have Genesis chapter 3, verse 12. The verse, of course, we're familiar with, where God speaks to Abraham and says, I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curses thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So there's another. So three quotes so far. Then he carries on and says, quoting really from Deuteronomy, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. But turn aside out of the way which I command you this day uh, to go after other gods which you have not known. And then another verse which he quotes, Cursed be he that confirms not all the words of this law to do them. You see, the problem with the law is you have to keep all of it. You know, one analogy I've heard is, you know, imagine somebody dangling off the edge of a cliff, holding onto a chain with all lots of links in it. How many links have to break in that chain for that person to fall? Just the one. That's the way it is with the law. You break one commandment, you've broken the law. Doesn't matter how many others you may have kept, if you've broken one, you're guilty, deserving of judgment. We have that verse, Habakkuk 2, verse 4. The just shall live by faith. So that's six so far, there's some more. In Leviticus 18, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. You see, there's the, the promise that if you could keep the law, well, then you'd be okay. But the problem is nobody can keep the law. Another scripture he quotes here really is from Leviticus 25, uh, verses 10 to 28, also chapter Ruth chapter 4, really speaking of redemption. It says, because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And it's an allusion to this law we find in Leviticus where somebody could purchase back that which once they'd had and they'd lost, maybe they'd sold it, they were in debt or whatever, and they sold a piece of land, they had the right of redemption, and it applied to people also. And so, Paul alludes to these scriptures. And then, last one, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Speaking of this, this verse, Paul says it, For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. In Deuteronomy we read, His body shall not remain all night upon the tree. But thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. That thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God gives thee for an inheritance. Just a few verses there, and Paul is just drawing so much from the Old Testament. But to prove his point, you see, the scripture clearly taught that no one could make or could be made righteous by the law. The scripture also taught very clearly that Gentiles would be grafted into the blessings of Israel. And that the blessing was not promised to Abraham on the basis of works, but simply on the basis of faith. So Paul now 
builds on this. And we now look at a logical argument that Paul presents. He says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, but yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuls or adds thereunto. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He said not unto seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant which was confirmed before God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But, and that's the key word, God gave it to Abraham by promise. So the final argument that Paul presents here is that God has made this covenant with Abraham that cannot be disannulled, it cannot be added to. The law did not supersede the covenant of grace made with Abraham. You see, that covenant that was made with Abraham was made first. The law didn't trump it, in a sense, didn't supersede it. If, therefore, that covenant still stands and includes the Gentiles, which clearly it did, we can be beneficiaries of it. So the promised inheritance can only, therefore, be obtained by faith, because that was the basis of that covenant. So the gospel of grace precedes and is superior to the law. Now, you can imagine that the Jews that are are reading this are starting to think, yeah, of course it does does say that, doesn't it? And starting to realise that the Bible has said this all along. But it was, of course, a, a mystery that was hidden. And Jesus, Matthew 13 and we find it uh, revealed again more in the book of Ephesians, Paul unpacks it there, that the mystery of the church was hidden in ages past. But God has now revealed it. And we can now see those threads in the Old Testament as God was working and bringing the Gentiles in. So those are the kind of arguments that Paul presents, trying to convince those that he's writing to, the foolishness of their position in trying to merge the gospel of the grace of God with the law, the Jewish law. You know, the moment you try and keep the law, you put yourself under the law. And this is what Paul is going to say. So let's just go back now and, and just quickly just go review these verses and see what we can draw out. First of all, Paul says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's quite a strong term that Paul uses. Really kind of put you under a spell. Almost, you know, you, you're not thinking, you've been drawn away and your, your mind isn't working properly. Who's bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Say, look, you've seen these things. You understand these things. How now can you move away? Isn't it interesting, though, that a lot of Christians end up following all sorts of nonsense? All sorts of things that are not scriptural. And yet, they started for a time with scripture. You know, and it's incredible how sometimes Christians just allow themselves to get taken by a particular theme, topic or whatever, and they go off on tangents, and they move away from the simplicity of the gospel. Just as it happened here with the Galatians, the same thing happens to us, you know. And and it's again, Paul's saying, a marvel that you so soon have moved away. He says, verse uh, 2, This only would I learn of you, received you the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. As we said earlier, how were you saved? Were you saved by something you did? I mean, this morning, were you saved by something that you did? No, you were saved by the grace of God. So why now could anything that you do 
help in that regard. He can't. He says, are you so foolish? Have you begun in the spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Now this is such an important verse for us to get our heads around. Because we know we were saved by grace. But the challenge for us now is that we're still trying to do things to be righteous. You know, if you get up early one morning, you spend some time in prayer and you read the Bible, I would always encourage you should, but then you start your day like that and have your time of devotion and then go out, you feel, this is good, I spent time with the Lord. The next day, if that doesn't happen, your mindset says that, oh, I'm not as, as righteous today. But you know what? God's grace doesn't change from one day to another. And it's not dependent upon what you do. Now, of course, as Christians, we should want to spend time with God. But you're not made right with God by doing things. You weren't saved by doing things, and you won't be made right with God by doing things. That's exactly what he's saying here to these Galatians. He says, have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? Now, this is an interesting thing because, you know, as Christians sometimes, we do suffer persecution. But, you know, if we are doing things by our own efforts, we're very much like the rest of the world. Pretty much every other religion out there does that. You know, they try to do things. I think it's quite interesting. Sometimes at work, we've got some Muslims and some Hindus, uh, some Sikhs and so on. And a little while ago, they were talking about fasting. And they were all openly and quite happily chatting about fasting and why they do it. And it's, it's something that they, they do because it gives them some sort of credit. Now, I didn't enter into the conversation. But I thought, you know, they wouldn't understand the whole basis of, but I fast because I love God. Because the moment you, they, they would be like, yeah, but, but, but why? What, what, what do you do? What do you, you know, particularly Muslims, they, they, they fast and Ramadan they fast because they feel that it's something that Allah wants them to do. It's something that's pleasing to Allah because they do good works during that period of time. And they abstain from things that they shouldn't do. I always find it strange that they abstain from things that apparently Allah disapproves of during Ramadan. The rest of the year they can seemingly get away with those things. But our relationship with God is a relationship. That's the whole key. It is a relationship. It's not just a set of rules that we're obeying. And Paul's saying here, you know, have you suffered many things in vain, if it be any in vain? You know, if you started in grace, why would you then try and get into that place where you do things to try and please God? He says, he therefore, and I believe that Paul is speaking of himself, he therefore that ministers to you the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? See, Paul had ministered to them by grace, and not because they'd earned it or deserved it. You see, they'd re- received the Spirit by grace, not because they deserved it on account of their good works. You see, trying to keep the law had done nothing for them. Haven't made them more righteous, they just haven't helped in that sense, just they're trying to do something. They carry on, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know you therefore, that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Now look at this, I think this is a really important point. Because it's an issue that's cropped up again recently. Abraham 
believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's it. Just believe God. Nothing else. You see, I want to just make the point here that notice that Abraham did not repent in the traditional understanding of that word. As in, show remorse, contrition, etc. He didn't do that before he believed, but consider the brokenness of Abraham as when he gets onto that mount where he takes Isaac to offer him up. He suddenly comes face to face with the cost of sin. At that point, I believe there's a huge amount of remorse and contrition in Abraham's heart. Recognizing that it's only blood that can atone for sin. Ultimately, it wasn't Isaac's blood, it was Jesus' blood that was shed. You see, there's a false gospel that's going around that tells people that they have to show remorse before they can believe. You know, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to that place. We're told in the book of Romans, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance, we're told in Corinthians. You know, somebody who is not a believer that doesn't have the Spirit of God within them can't truly understand the reality of sin and the cost that has to be paid to save us from sin. And that's why, again and again and again, you read in Scripture that all you have to do to be saved is to believe. It is so simple. And it's actually offensively simple because we want to add something to it. We love to say, well, you've got to do this. You've at least got to get to that place before you can... No, just believe. Now, of course, it's not believe that God exists, believe that Jesus exists. That's not what it's saying. We know, of course, that the devils believe. Yeah, that's... It's believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross to pay for our sin, and that he rose again. That's what Paul tells us in the book of Corinthians. According to the scriptures. Believe that. That's all it is. You see, on the cross, Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world. And a lot of people, when they come to know the Lord, there's joy. There's just wonderful joy as we come to that place of realizing. In a sense, it's kind of that veil is lifted from our eyes. But you know, once we are believers, once we are Christians, once we are following Christ, well that's when the repentance begins. And it carries on every day of our lives as we become more and more aware. Paul, oh, sorry, John in uh, his first epistle says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As believers, the more we grow in grace, the less we should be sinning, but the more we'll be repenting. As the Lord just reveals more and more of his goodness and we start to get rid of things in our life and we start to get rid of those works that we previously done that we thought would buy some sort of favor with God and we come to that place of simply trusting in him. Abraham, believe God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. <clears throat> now notice also here, we're told that, know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So that's you and I this morning. If we are of faith, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, we're also told here the children of Abraham. Now interestingly, back in Matthew's Gospel, 
There's a situation with John the Baptist, and we're told they went out to him, that's to John the Baptist, Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O you generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, firstly to point out, we said this a few weeks ago, the gospel that John preached was a very different gospel to the one that we preach. He preached a gospel warning them to repent because the kingdom was at hand. And the word, again, the word repent just means to think differently, to change the way they were living. Because the kingdom was coming. John and the disciples and even the Jews and the Romans all expected Jesus to be about to set up his own kingdom there and then. Of course, they didn't understand Isaiah 53, that Jesus had to come first as a suffering servant to pay for the sins of the world. And then the second time Jesus will come and he will come and sit on the throne of David. The passage carries on. It says, bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. And think not to say within yourselves we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. Now this phrase here that God is able to raise up children unto Abraham of these stones. What stones? Well, (coughs) the place that John is baptizing here is the same place that the Jews had crossed over the Jordan. They crossed over the Jordan. If you remember the situation with Joshua, they take some stones and put in the river, but they take these other stones out of the bottom of the riverbed, which is all dried up as they cross over, and they bring these new stones and put this kind of mountain of stones there, one stone for each tribe, because they're entering in by faith. These stones represent a generation that have put their trust in God. They had faith in him. And John is now saying, these stones, which represent simply putting faith in God. He said, those, he says, of these stones I'm able to raise up children of Abraham, obviously figuratively speaking, but he's really looking and speaking prophetically of us. Back into Galatians verse 9, so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. He said, Paul admonished the Corinthian believers to walk by faith and not by sight. You see, faith again, such a, a key component. And we're told in Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to believe, uh, to please him. You know, you don't believe unless you have faith. Faith and belief, they're all part of that same package together. That we have to put our trust. Believing is about having faith. We're told, for as many as are under the works of the law, are under the curse of the law. For it is written, curse is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now again, just emphasizing, he's kind of upping the ante really here. You see, not only will the law not profit, which is really the point he's made so far, but he's saying if you want to be under the law, literally keep the law, you place yourself under the curse of the law. Now that changes things a little bit. You know, we've got a lot of people today that try to keep the Sabbath. I remember some years ago when we did the thing on Genesis TV. Week after week after week, we had people calling in asking us about the Sabbath. You know, look, if you want to keep the Sabbath because you want to just have a day where you rest, that's fine. But don't do it because you feel you should do it, you ought to do it, or you think it will make you more righteous. You know, there are a number of things in the law. You know, every detail in the law is there for a reason. 
There are some good things in the law. And much of the law we still want to abide by. But we are not bound by the law anymore. In fact, again, Paul makes it really clear here that if we start to try and live by the law, we put ourselves under the curse of the law. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that does them shall live in them. In other words, the man that tries to keep the law, well, that's how he's going to live if he can keep the law, which he can't. Now this verse, the just shall live by faith, it comes from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. And it actually seems to lead to a trilogy of epistles that we find in the New Testament. We find it in the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, really the theme is there, the just. And it tells us who they are. How are we justified with God? Galatians that we're looking at now is really speaking about how we shall live. And that's what we're going to be moving on to in the next few chapters. It's living by this grace. And we find the verse occur also in the book of Hebrews. And the great theme there in the book of Hebrews is that living by faith. Each of those Epistles use Habakkuk 2.4 as their cornerstone. It's just more evidence of God's design in Scripture. And we're told of this curse. It says Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. You see, because he died in our place, he hung on a tree and became a curse, so that we wouldn't, we're told, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham, that blessing of faith, yeah, might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is the beautiful simplicity and wonder of the Gospel. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuls or adds thereunto. He's saying, look, even a covenant that we would sign with each other as, as humans, as men, you know, even that is an agreement that can't be disannulled, that can't be added to. It, it is what it is. And it says, now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. And it says, not as to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, which is Christ. Speaking of this covenant that's been made. Speaking again of Jesus, the one who was to come. Now, I just want to point out something here. Because Paul hangs his argument on Christ being the mediator of this new covenant. On whether the word in this particular verse is single or singular or plural. He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He says not, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, to thy seed. Why am I bringing this out? Well, because you just need to be aware that... Some of the modern translations change an awful lot of things that on the surface you may not think make a big difference. But unfortunately, a lot of those things lead to an erosion of God's word. Yeah, we've got more Bible versions than ever in the history of the world. I mean, you, today you probably couldn't even count the number of different versions of the Bible we've got. Today's NIV, that's not the NIV, that's today's NIV. It's actually a, a translation in its own right. There are 3,600 changes in the text, and 2,000 of those change from singular to plural or vice versa. Paul hangs his argument here on whether it's a singular or plural word. So you need to be very careful. You see, every word of God is pure, we're told. Many of the changes that are made in a lot of the modern verses, 
remove the sense of personal responsibility. They remove the responsibility from being you to them. And there's a lot of other subtle changes. So just be aware that some of the modern versions, we just be a little careful, always worth checking with something that is a proper translation. You know, a lot of the, the versions use something called dynamic equivalence. What you're getting is what the translator thinks was intended. Not what actually the original said. Now, that's okay if they get it right, but if they don't, so you need to be just a little cautious. Galatians 3.17, we carry on. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul. So just picking up that theme again, that this covenant with Abraham was established first. And the law which came later can't change, can't annul the covenant that God had made with Abraham, that it should make the promise of none effect. Now, I just want to have a quick detour because I just want to share something with you that uh, amazingly so many people miss. And I put my hand up because I talked through the book of Exodus and I completely missed this. And after we'd finished going through, I had to go back and we did another study to correct this error. It's not a major error, but I'll explain why it's important in a moment. Just first of all then, Paul tells us the law was given 430 years after God confirmed the covenant with Abraham. Question, when did God confirm the covenant with Abraham? Very clearly, when he was 75 years old, we read about it in Genesis 12 verse 4, that's when God made the covenant with Abraham. Now, the issue is one of biblical integrity. You see, one of the greatest areas of attack has been the chronology of the biblical record. And people love to say, oh, the Bible's not consistent and things don't add up and so on and so on. Biblical chronology has suffered as much at the hands of its supporters as it has by its detractors. People that have tried to defend the Bible without really looking into it and looking at the details have often introduced more errors than were there originally. You know, they introduce the errors they kind of seek to eradicate. In Exodus chapter 12, um, and we read there in verse 40, that the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. Now, it goes on, and it says, It came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the self-same day, came to pass that the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Back in Genesis 15, there, God speaking to Abraham again, said to Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. We're also told that the nation whom they serve God's going to judge, and afterwards they're going to come out with great substance. So we know that the nation that God judged was Egypt. So it's assumed that the 400 years were all spent in Egypt from this verse. But that's not actually what is being said. Barnes makes the error, and this is what he says, the obvious intention of Moses is to state that the duration of the sojourn in Egypt, that's what he says. He's a great commentator, I love Albert Barnes' stuff. William MacDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary says, The 430 years mentioned here cover the total time that the Israelites spent in Egypt. It's an exact figure to the very day, he says. Now, it's great, and he's wrong. And this is the problem. A lot of these people make these bold assertions, and they've missed things. And I'll show you why. The King James Bible Commentary, produced by Nelson, they say that 430 years was the number of years from the time Jacob entered Egypt 
until Israel escaped the Exodus. Really? Well, you see, this is the traditional resolution. That the sojourn, the time they spent living in Egypt was 430 years. The time of affliction, we're told, was 400 years. So if we do the maths, therefore, the 30 years of relative peace must have been at the beginning of their time in Egypt when Joseph was prime minister. So that's what's assumed. Now, all of those are wrong assumptions. But so many Bible commentators and scholars and people that have read the Bible will come to that conclusion because they don't look any deeper. Now look, I'll show you how easy it is to disprove that. First of all, Joseph was 17 when he was taken to Egypt. We read in the text he's 30 when he becomes Pharaoh's number two. At 39, he's united with his family. Now assuming that the 430 years, as many do think is that time, that was all spent in Egypt... If Israel spent 400 years in harsh treatment, in bondage as it said, then it had to begin 30 years after the family came to Egypt. But that would mean that at 69 years old, Joseph was suddenly forgotten or removed from power. But we know Joseph lives for a total of 110 years, we're told that in scripture as well. So that assumption would mean that Joseph lived for 41 years out of favour with Pharaoh, or effectively being persecuted, him and the Jews. But there's no mention of that in scripture at all. And now we actually know that Joseph lived to see his great-grandchildren. And there's no mention of any persecution. And more interestingly, when Joseph died, he's given a royal burial. Well, you wouldn't give that to a slave or to somebody that you disregarded and had no value in your eyes. The Egyptians wouldn't have done that. Another interesting point, back in Genesis, God speaking to Abraham and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, for thou shalt be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Okay. From the point they leave the promised land, it will be just four generations until they return. That's what's being told here. Okay. So are we to assume that each generation is to last a hundred years? Now, we go to Exodus. We're given there the lineage of Levi. So Levi, one of the sons of Jacob, he has a son by the name of Kohath. Okay? Genesis chapter 46 confirms that Kohath went down to Egypt. So when the family moved to Egypt, Kohath was one of those that went. Now in Exodus chapter 6, picking up verse 18, we're told that the sons of Kohath and were given them, but one of them was a man named Amram. Now we're told in verse 20, Amram took him, Jochebed, his father's sister, to wife, and she bore to him Aaron and Moses. So then we're given, actually, our four generations. Let's just look at them again. So Levi, his son Kohath, and then Amram and Moses. Four generations, just as prophesied, from the time they went to Egypt. Now, if we assume that Kohath was at least one years old when he went to Egypt, and he were told in the text he died at age 133, and that Amran was born in the very last year of Kohath's life, to give us a maximum possible time. We're told that Amram died when he was 137. Moses, if we assume he was born in the last year of Amram, and we know that he was 80 years old at the time of the Exodus, the conclusion of the 430 years, because we know that the Exodus occurred at that point. If we add those numbers up, we have a problem. Because we have a total of 350 years. That's 80 years short of the 430. What it would mean is that we have to conclude that Moses was born 80 years after his father died. I think you'll agree that's pretty unlikely. We have a real problem when you adopt that 
suggestion, the idea that so many people say that that 430 years was all spent in Egypt. Now let's just look at what Luke tells us and records for us in Acts. We read verse 6 of chapter 7. God spoke on this wise that his seed should sojourn in a strange land and they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. Now we need to kind of ask a few questions. Who are the them that is being referred to here? And then we're told, and the nation to whom they shall be in bondage, will I judge, says God, and after that they shall come forth and serve me in this place. My paraphrase of this is, God decreed thus, that Abraham's seed will sojourn without their own land, and even be brought into bondage, and be vexed for 400 years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage, I will judge, says God, and after that they shall come forth and serve me in this place. That's effectively what we're being told there. Now most assume all of this to be a reference to Egypt, but... Canaan was also a strange land to Israel. They were promised the land, but the land was not taken until the time of Joshua. Notice what we're told a few verses before this in the book of Acts. Again, just speaking of Abraham, and he had no inheritance, no, not so much as to set his foot on. So they didn't have the land. The land of Canaan wasn't their land. It was a strange land to them. And actually we find this a number of places. Remember when Abraham um, purchases the cave of Machpelah to bury his wife? The people of the land, even the children of Heth, uh, we're told, we're told the people of the land. It wasn't Israel's land at this time. Isaac, we're told, moved a number of times, although he never had a permanent home in the land. Just in Genesis 26, the Lord appeared unto him and said, Go not down to Egypt, dwell in the land which I shall tell thee of. Sojourn in this land. He was a sojourner. It wasn't his home. Okay? The same for Jacob. You see, even when he's fleeing from Esau, we're told of the land that he would be given it, but it wasn't his land. Not at that point. The conclusion is quite simple. Whilst Israel's dwelling in a strange foreign land included their stay in Egypt, it began with their time in Canaan. The whole period was one of vexation for Abraham's seed. The whole time. So, regarding this constant vexation in a strange land, in Genesis 34, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I being few in number, they that... They shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed and my house. You see, it was a time of vexation. Clearly, Jacob knew that he had problems with the people surrounding him. It wasn't their homeland. We read the same problems with Isaac's servants, with this well that was dug. And there was this big dispute over it. It wasn't their land. They were just uh, sojourning there for a time. Interestingly, not that it's something we would put too much faith or trust in, but the Samaritan Pentateuch actually renders Exodus 12.40 this way. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel and of their fathers, which they sojourned in the land of Canaan and in the land of Egypt, was 430 years. It's suggesting this whole period was spread, spread not just in, in Egypt, but between Canaan as well. So, it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So we can know when the period ended. So that's the end point. So the really only question is, when did it begin? Well, we're told in this verse that we're looking at in Galatians. Paul says, This I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul. 
So the starting point is confirmed as when God made the covenant with Abraham. When was the covenant confirmed? As we've already said. When Abraham was 75 years old, when he was given that call to come and to move into that. That's when he actually gets to the land, which we refer to today as Israel, but at the time known as the land of Canaan. And this 400 years was just a time of vexation. That 400 years, well, it began 30 years after Abraham entered Canaan when Isaac was weaned and the vexing of Abraham's seed began. You remember the story in the account with Ishmael? Ishmael didn't like Isaac. Isaac, because of the situation being the one of promise, starts to poke fun at him and tease him. And as a result of this, Hagar and Ishmael are eventually sent away. But that's when this vexation of Abraham's seed began. <clears throat> so Abraham was born when Abraham was, so Isaac was born when Abraham was a hundred. Isaac, we find, was weaned about the age of five. And that's when that vexation begins. Again, it's just that situation with Hagar. Adam Clark, in his commentary, gets it right. He says, from Abraham's entry into Canaan to the birth of Isaac was 25 years. Isaac was 60 years old at the birth of Jacob, and Jacob was 130 at the going down into Egypt, which three sums make 215 years of our 430. And then Jacob and his children, having continued in Egypt 215 years more, the whole sum is 430 years. There's no contradiction, there's no problem. But there is a problem if we try and make that whole of that picture, uh, 430 years spent in Egypt. Okay, just very, very quickly to conclude this section, then we just tie up. Abraham was 75 when the promise was made to him. Okay, there's 25 years between the promise and the birth of Isaac. Okay, plus 60 years from Isaac to Jacob's birth. Plus 130 years, uh, age when Jacob went to Egypt, is 215 years. That's the first part of what we've just seen. And then another 215 years spent in Egypt, equal to 430 years in total. That bondage in Egypt had to be a minimum of 80 years because we know that it was happening when Moses was born. And obviously it was still the problem at the time of the Exodus, but probably wasn't much more. Levi died 16 years after Joseph. Okay, Joseph died at the age of 110. So the bondage didn't begin until after that generation had died, we're told in Exodus 1 verse 6. So the bondage actually lasted for around about 128 years, if you put all those figures together. So it wasn't the whole time. That's the time of bondage in Egypt they were under. What's the conclusion? Well, quite simply, we can trust the word of God. You know, we've got to be Bereans and don't just take what people say. Most Bible commentators I know will tell you that that 400 years, the 430 years was all spent in Egypt. And if you work it out, it contradicts so many scriptures. So I hope I've not confused you. You can go back. The slides will be on the website. You can go through that. Look at it in detail. Um, But it is important to understand that the Bible is trustworthy. The details are there and we can trust everything we read. Right, let's get back to Galatians. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And that really concludes the argument that Paul is making. That the law itself has no value to us if we are saved by grace. Because just as this covenant was made by Abraham, 
It was, it was unconditional. God, Abraham didn't have to do anything for it. And so it is with us. So the only question then that remains is the why question. And Paul in the remaining verses just answers that. The question then is, what, why for, what for then serves the law? Why do we have the law then if the covenant of Abraham was by promise and so on? He says, well, simply it was this. It was added because of transgressions, because of sin, because we're sinners. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, speaking of Jesus. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator, referring to Moses, who received the law. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, very righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture has concluded or confined all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. You see, the law has one simple purpose and that is to show that you are sinful. That's what the law does. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Why for? Sorry, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. The Greek word is pedagogue. It's, it's the idea of a kind of a chaperone, one that would go around with a with a young child and take care of and look after. That's what the law did in a sense, leading us to that place where eventually we would come to Christ, where we would be aware of our own sinful nature. That's what the law is there for, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye all are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What a wonderful thing that, you know, the law does have distinctions, but in Christ there is nothing. You know, we are all the same. I love the way they hear that Paul makes it very clear that man and woman are equal. You know, bond and free. We're all equal because we're all saved by grace. You see, if it was about works or something we could do, well then somebody may be able to boast or brag that they were better than someone else. But that's not the case. We're all saved by this unconditional grace that we could never earn. This is a wonderful thing that today, we, wherever we are, whatever our, our situation in life, that grace is there. We were singing earlier about that grace. And just the more we start to study this, the more I think the Lord is just helping us to see not just that we were saved by grace. That's something that I think we get. But that we should be living by grace. And that's what we'll look at as we move on into the subsequent chapters. Let's just bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together today. Lord, we just pray now that you impress these things upon our hearts. Lord, I just ask that you help us to understand more of grace. Lord, what this means to us, Lord, and how we should live our lives. That, Lord, you don't want us to strive and try and be better. Because, Lord, you've done it all. There is nothing we can bring that is of greater value than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to understand that Jesus truly has done it all. And all we need to do is learn to walk with him, to receive that grace that you freely give. 
Thank you, Lord, that we've been saved by grace. But Lord, help us now to live in that grace and to walk by faith. Lord, help us to understand these things. And Lord, again, we just thank you that we can trust your word. That every detail in there is there for our learning. We just thank you for these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.